Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome back, everyone. Today, my guest is Christian Rufert. Christian spoke at GeoMob London all the way back in September 2016. He is the founder of a London-based company called Terragence that does network analytics. I wanted to have Christian on the show. There are a couple of reasons I thought this might be very interesting for the GeoMob audience. So first of all, as a, as a startup founder, in some ways, Christian doesn't exactly fit the mold of your typical startup founder. So I think there's some things we can explore there. But also what, what it is that Terragence does, because while Christian is a GeoMob regular, and many of you may have seen him at Geovation and things, you know, they don't present themselves at all as a geo company, even though they use a lot of geo stuff behind the scenes. So I think that could be very interesting also for, for others listening. So without further ado, Christian, welcome to the podcast. Uh, give us a little introduction and tell us what exactly it is that Terrence does. What do you, what do, you do and, and kind of what's Geo about it? Thanks, Ed. Well, my name is uh, Christian Rufert. I am the CEO and founder of Terragence, and we describe Terragence as a network crowdsourcing and geo-analytics business, which is quite a mouthful, so I'm still working to get that elevator pitch a bit more crisp, but that's what it is. Basically, what we do is we work with location-enabled apps to collect location-specific data about the state of mobile networks worldwide. We do that collection in a private. We do that data collection in a data privacy-respecting way. So we all know all about GDPR and working on the right line of GDPR. But in short, every time that a location-enabled app connects to the mobile network, it collects some information about the state of that mobile network. We collect and aggregate that data at scale. We, we clean it, we standardize it, and then we crunch it to create mobile data inside products. And we sell those products to everybody who essentially depends on mobile network to make their business work. The geo angle in our business comes from the fact that a lot of crowdsourcing companies will issue reports saying the best network for 4G in the UK is XYZ. We believe that's a much too coarse way of looking at things. We believe that you should say the best network for mobile connectivity on the corner of street A and B is network X. So very location specific. And so that location specificity got us into the whole geo angle of things. Okay, fantastic, Christian. So lots of pieces to explore there. So let's get right into the the first thing that springs to mind is anytime I hear of someone doing kind of crowdsourcing and of data, and then I guess you alluded to this kind of the doing this in a privacy specific way under GDPR, but how exactly do you do that? Okay, so how does this data harvesting work? And, and can, you, can you go into any details there? Yes. So as I said, we work with location enabled apps to collect that location-specific network information. The one thing that we are very, very careful about is that we do not collect any permanent ID associated with those measurements. Basically saying, you know, if you have a permanent ID associated with a number of location measurements, you do not need a lot of location measurements to kind of work your way back into who that person might be. Right. So and whether that ID is anonymized or is a lot of cryptic symbols doesn't really matter. So we are very careful not to collect any permanent IDs associated with our data. You cannot find anybody in that data. And we are very careful that that's never the case. So and that's a great comfort for our partners. And we make sure that, you know, we always stay on the right side of the GDPR. Very nice. So. 
Okay, so at this point now you've got the data, and then presumably you do some kind of processing on it, and and you create these products. But so like like what are those products, and who who are the customers? What are the use cases? Give, give us tell us that side of things. Yes, we often get that question because people go, it's quite cool, but what do you do with it? And actually, it turns out you can do quite a bit. So the first product that we have is what we call our signal checker product. It's essentially a mobile network coverage map, but on steroids. We think that the mobile coverage maps provided by regulators and by operators are essentially marketing tools, but have very little operational relevance. They allow you to ascertain mobile coverage in aggregate, but not on the corner of street A and street B. And we provide exactly that detail that says on the corner of street A and street B, what is the expected signal strength for operator X? And that's basically a service that's directed at everybody that wants to deploy a wireless device in a specific location and wants to make sure that it's going to work. And generally speaking, you know, networks work 80 to 90% of the time and it's all fine. But in 10 to 20% of the time, for example, in Internet of Things businesses, it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it causes a disproportionate amount of grief. And we're basically helping people to estimate whether that grief, how much grief they're going to get and if they're going to take measurements. Another use case, for example, which we came across, which we found very interesting, was with parcel delivery companies, you know, courier companies that work for the likes of Amazon. When they have to deliver to rural locations, they have two problems. Number one, the address and its match with the location mm-hmm. is a bit vague. So you end up running around finding where is you know the big tree cottage exactly. But most importantly, in those areas, there's often bad mobile coverage. So if as a delivery driver, you're running around trying to find this specific cottage and you cannot call, you're wasting a lot of time. And so again, our service slots into that use case and gives people the heads up beforehand that there might be an issue which enables you to shave off a few percentage points in your efficient in your delivery efficiency, which actually translates into quite a few dollars for those companies. So that's one set of use cases. Another product is our cell coverage product, which basically enables us to describe in great detail the footprint of every individual cell tower. So we say, if you connect to this cell tower, we know that that cell tower covers this block of streets. And that has a use case in, in course location assessments. Mm. So every time that you want to find the location of an object, but you cannot use GPS, then we can use cell-based location assessment, which is not as precise, but it's good enough. And in many cases, good enough is just that, good enough. And we sell that to a variety of uh, location-based players, as well as what are called MVNOs, mobile virtual network operators. And then the third aspect is basically any matter of custom analytics, AI, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, that we can do on our data to find specific, let's just say, bespoke questions and bespoke insights for our customers. For example, we're doing work with a specialized real estate player to map out indoor signal quality across a number of buildings in major cities. So that would be another example. So that's what we do. That's who we serve. And, and are you doing this primarily in the UK or are you doing it across multiple markets? Or where? We're doing it mainly now across Europe and North America, but that's just a consequence of our customer base. But there is no reason that we couldn't do it for the rest of the world. Okay. So, so a couple of things immediately jump out at me. First of all, that must be an absolute immense amount of data. That you're shuffling around. It is indeed, and yes. It's, and then we, we, we are, we are quite macho about that. But 
your your target market of customers right is is basically the uh the mobile operators right so not a lot you know there aren't there aren't hundreds of mobile operators right so so how do you kind of grapple with that and and well that's the, that's a question we get asked quite a few times sorry i did interrupt you also from the broader point speaking from my own experience with startups you know, trying as a tiny startup, trying to work with these big companies like like telecoms or large organizations in general, you know, they just move at such a different schedule and such a different pace. It's an absolute nightmare. And then even when, even if the people want to work with you, I mean, just the amount of time it takes to get into the accounting department and all this kind of things and to actually get paid. I mean, so so how do you grapple with that? I mean, how do you how do you kind of solve that? I'm sure that would be of interest for others. Yes, that's that's one of that's one of the interesting learnings for us as a company so i came you know as you said in your introduction i'm not your classical fresh out of college entrepreneur i actually had a significant let's say corporate career before i started this business and so when we started this business we thought oh my god this is this data is going to be so cool we're going to do so many interesting things and the obvious market this big you know mastodont of a market opportunity is the mobile operator. So we're going to target the mobile operators. And that didn't turn out so well. And for a number of reasons, one one is that with corporates and especially mobile operators who are a very special breed of corporates, you can have many, many good meetings, right? And you meet people that are very interested in your proposition. But what you learn very quickly is that in corporations, good meetings lead to other good meetings, leads to other good meetings, because that's the way a corporation works. Many people need to be involved. Many people need to see it. There is essentially a common understanding that needs to be built, a consensus that needs to be built that buying a certain service, especially if it is from a small unknown brand, is a good idea. And that process takes an inordinate amount of time. When it is then decided that that is a good idea, there is an entire process of admin, buyer registration, accounting, all kinds of forms that you have to fill in. And then typically the buying format is some kind of competitive tender, which means that you fill in even more forms and you get squeezed on the price. And we found that process really hard and draining both psychologically and on the physical resources. And we were not very successful with it. So in the end, we decided to pivot away and take a very conscious decision not to sell to the big corporates and basically target smaller companies. And smaller companies in our world means anywhere, you know, turnover between, let's say, $1 million or £1 million and a billion pounds, right? So it can be still quite large. But we found that creating a targeted solution for those players in those markets enabled us to, you know, collapse the decision timeline and get to sales very quickly. So we got to sales quicker. The sales are smaller. So you're not hunting these big mammoths. You're hunting, you know, what I call squirrel and deer. Yeah. But, you know, you can bring them in at a regular pace. And also, more interestingly, is we discovered that there's actually a whole universe outside of the big telco, which we call small telco and associated services that you don't think of at first hand, but is, is very significant in its own size. So for example, in every country, you'll have four major mobile operators, but you have a multitude of that, what are called mobile virtual network operators. Mm. They each are businesses of several tens of millions of pounds or dollars in them, their own right. 
They are looking for creative solutions. So that's a very interesting market for us. Similarly, there are, you know, next to the big operators, there are operators that specialize just in indoor cell coverage, of which there are many more than the traditional mobile operators. Again, smaller, making faster decisions. So we found that kind of like tier two or adjacent market actually to be quite large and much easier to sell to. And so that's what we focused on and that, that helped us to become successful. That, that, that's interesting because actually at, at my own company, OpenCage, we went through a similar process. And, and last year we, we got contacted by a major operator, you know, one of the biggest operators in the world. And you know, it seemed like they like our product and were ready to purchase. And basically after six months of going back and forth and doing calls, I, I basically had to stop the process because I was just like, guys, I can't spend so much time on this. We were at the point where we were like, you know, they don't even make the purchase themselves. It goes through an through a outsourced purchasing company, you know, and I was trying to deal with these people who had no idea what they were purchasing or why they were purchasing it. And it's, at some point, I just got so fed up and just said, I can't do it. But it's interesting that you've discovered this kind of niche of what you call the small mobile. And and that, that's that's an interesting terrain to hunt in. And well, as you alluded to in your answer, there, you your own background is coming from from Toka. So let let let's t- tell us a bit about about that, about how you made the jump to entrepreneurship, and you know what what how that process was, and what made you make that step. Yes, that's a an interesting story. So I probably worked in telecoms business in various guises for the first. 15, maybe even 20 years in my, of my career. And I first worked in for various telecom businesses or telecom adjacent businesses. And then I worked as a management consultant for Accenture consulting into the telecom companies. And I really enjoy that. I, that was good stuff and, and, and interesting things. But one of my bosses once described me as saying, like, if the company was a brass band and it was, you know, striking up a tune, I would kind of fall in line with the tune, but I would be the guy who would play the piano and find jazz improvisations on the, yeah. on, the, the, on the main theme. And it co- would kind of align to the theme, but if the brass band then stuck off on its marching tune, I would be slightly out of sync. It would be interesting, but slightly out of sync and a bit more jazzy and a bit more freewheeling. And so, you know, that, you know, that I find that a re- really interesting assessment. And so when I hit, I guess, my mid-40s, I kind of came to a point where I had to decide where, whether I would really join the brass band or start my own jazz band, proverbially speaking. And I often joke and say, well, I had my midlife crisis and instead of buying myself an open-top Ferrari and reliving my youth, I decided that it was time to make the jump and get my own startup, which is what I did. And to clarify, did you have any geo background at all at any of these previous roles or purely more on the telco side? I had zero, zero geo background. So we came to this idea of crowdsourcing and analytics and, and software-defined networks, which are very big themes in the industry. And we came to it and said, look, you know, the world is moving to data. Telecoms is moving to data. So... Uh, let's do analytics on this crowdsource data and create some valuable products around that. Geo did not really come into that. But as we kind of started to peel back the layers of the problem statement or the market opportunity, we realized that geography 
and location mattered, right? As I said, we wanted to give the indication of what is the signal on this street corner versus that street corner that gets you into all kinds of location things. And we realized that with the vast amounts of data that we had to process, that not only geo is an important dimension, it's also a dimension that you cannot treat as any other information point in your database. It's, it has peculiarities that make it sometimes very difficult to aggregate, to process and stuff like that. So by hook and by crook, almost forced by circumstance, we had to dig into what is probably described as the world of GIS today. It's a term I really do not like, and I'll, I'll tell you why. But we had to get into GIS-like techniques and approaches to, to crunch the data and present it in a useful way. So we brought geo in as a dimension, but not because we were geo-obsessed, because we, but, we, but, but because we were business-obsessed, and that was an important dimension. So... We got to use tools like QGIS and Esri. We you know, got to understand all the libraries that you have, all the geo libraries and tools that you have available in Python. And we're quite proficient in those, but it's always from an angle of the business first and the geo dimension later. So we, for example, in the way that we address the market, we don't talk about GIS because GIS to me and to our customers calls up this idea of slightly nerdy geography type stuff, yeah. which, you know, and so we use the term geoanalytics, which is basically analytics in a geographical context, which kind of makes it less scary and more business applicable. And it's something that we see all the time, right? We, we also use AI style things, but we don't say we are an AI company, mm. right? I'm, because it that that kind of it, it betrays a fascination with the technology rather than the solution. So we come, you know, we have a solution that means that we have to work around a lot of geo stuff and we have to understand a lot of geo use cases, but we're not geo obsessed people, if that kind of makes sense. Well, first of all, you must be the only startup in, in the world that's not claiming AI <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but, but congratulations on this transition. That's, uh, that's great. And frankly, for me personally, of course, I welcome all the slightly nerdy GIS people at GeoMob as well. But I love it when people come kind of from other industries and, and bring that knowledge and are applying Geo to it. I think that's really the where the interesting things can really happen. So, so tell us some more about this as you, as you struck out on your own, as your, as your jazz with your improvisational jazz. So what, what has been kind of the good, the bad and the ugly of it? The transition from a more traditional corporate world cannot have been easy. So, um, yes. And it's one of those things, right? I came from corporate life. I had an MBA under my belt and I thought, okay, well, startup life or entrepreneurial life is going to be like corporate life. It's business life, but just slightly different. Right. And I quickly learned that that is not the case. It's, it's a totally different beast at so many different levels. I think the first one and I think is one of the most fundamental, at least for me, is on a personal level, right? No matter how much you profess to dislike corporate life, it does have a significant dimension of personal validation in there. You know, you have a job, you have a job title, you have a boss that wants to hear from you from time to time, you have underlings that you have to direct and that want to hear from you as well. I mean, it's a bit of an old-fashioned term, but 
you know, that's what it is in the end. You have customers that, that you need to talk to. So those things are all, you know, they validate your existence and they validate your, your, your position yeah. or your perceived social position. When you start up as a business, all you have is some good ideas and the phone is not necessarily going to ring very often. So, and when the, when you ring up other people, they're not going to go, oh yeah, I, you know, you are backed up by this great brand. I, I love to hear what you have to say, right? You can, you can leverage to a certain extent personal connections that you have built up. But a lot of those kind of external scaffolding of your social persona falls away. And, you know, no matter what people say, you, you kind of depend on that to a lesser or, certain, or, or bigger extent. So you have to kind of, strip that back and build that up again. And you have to hustle to do that, right? You have to drum up business. You have to find customers. You have to tell your story. You have to convince them that they work, that, that it will work. You do not have the brand of your employer behind you. So you're, you have to build your personal brand. That was quite an interesting experience. And maybe that reflects, you know, my midlife you know, reflections on personality on that. Well, I, I think many, many people underestimate that. The dealing with that ambiguity and not having an easy answer when someone asks, you know, say, so what do you do, right? I think a lot of people struggle with that. It's harder than, than people might realize. Yes, exactly. And it's, it's quite, a friend of mine says, all transformation is painful, which sounds horrifically cliche, but it is. And that, that is not to be underestimated. You know, when you have to go and say, well, I run this business, you know, you can say, oh, I run this business. I am, you know, the, the, the brave, independent uh, wayfarer, but, you know, that's not easy, right? So I think the second one is the kind of overall support structure, right? If you live in a corporate world, people do things from you. Accounting takes care of the costs. Billing takes care of the billing. In consulting land, somebody will make your PowerPoint for you, right? Those things all happen. They happen automatically. They don't cost anything. You know, it just happens, right? One of the big shocks that I had initially was to go, okay, I would declare that something needs to be happened or something needs to be built. And then you go, well, where is the person that does that for me? And that person does not exist. Yeah, I, I, I do that too. I just I announce the plans and then I just clap and hopefully it appears. But uh, somehow it doesn't always work, Christian. Yes, yes. And it goes to all things big and small. And for all things big and small, you then have to make a decision, well, I could probably buy or pay somebody to solve that problem. And you have platforms like, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to hire somebody. You can hire somebody to platforms like Upwork and find good stuff, but that that costs you money. And as a small startup, you don't necessarily have boatloads and boatloads of money. So you have to decide, okay, will I spend the money or will I spend my own time trying to get my head around this, to learn a bit of coding, to, to you know, to, to create my own designs, whatever the thing is. But that's a lot of personal drain or effort to create something that's actually quite mundane, mm. right? So I'll give an example. You know, if you have to go to a, to a trade fair, you have to stand your booth, you have to kind of decide what you're going to buy and how it's going to hang together and how it's going to look. That takes time to understand what is available, how you do that. You know, it, you, you spend actually an inordinate amount of time doing what you think are very basic stuff, or you have to decide to spend money, which you don't have or you don't have much of. So you have to make that continuous decision between you know, DIY, which you could, 
or or paying somebody, which actually costs real money as opposed to corporate money. Mm. So, yeah, kind of like continuous. And and in the beginning, I had to teach myself like these things, like the GIS tools and the Python coding. And I would run around in the house really grumpy because it wasn't progressing. But the flip side of it is when you then master these domains or you can create something that then has value or is perceived to have value in the outside world, I think there's no greater kick than that, right? You kind of, you know, yeah, you you came up with the idea, you made the idea happen and somebody's paying money for that. That's always, you know, that's the best kick in, in life, I think. So yeah, it took me a while to kind of make those changes, but now I really like where I'm, I'm at. Well, congratulations. Yeah, that, that's uh, an impressive story. And my hope is that there's someone out there listening right now with their, you know, their mouse hovering over the purchase button on the uh, convertible Ferrari. And then they pull away and say, you know what? Maybe a geo startup might be a better uh, might be a better way to to go. So exactly, I, I think it's really impressive, Christian. You should be you should be pleased. So well, thank you. And I guess as part of this journey, of course, you eventually along the way discovered GeoMob at some point, and and you've been a regular attendee over the last couple of years. So any one one standard question that we'd like to have for people who who have been there, whether any favorite memories or talks that inspired you, or I think I don't know the person who made the talk, but I remember. I remember being at one of the sessions, and I'm probably going to be suitably vague here, where somebody presented a different ways of visualizing data in a geo context. And he explained that visualization is not neutral, that the way you present specifically data in a geographical context always reflects your own predilections or political or moral opinions about things and how you can play around with that and how you how you can bring out certain conclusions or de-emphasize it by apparently very simple tricks and the same information presented slightly differently makes a big impact. And I don't know who the person was that made that presentation. So, but that was, you know, that's always stuck. Well, you know, I mean, so I think several people have made that point, but actually, I don't know if you listened to the the most recent episode that has come out with the, the new book by Ken Field, Kenneth Field, he, in his book, he takes the U.S. election data from 2016 and makes like 50 different maps out of it. So with one data set, but he presents it in 50 different ways, and he shows how you can, you know, depending on which message you want to emphasize or which point you want to make or how you want to kind of manipulate the conversation, you can you can do that with the data. Yeah. And so it's a very powerful example, I think, of exactly this, that, that something... Something everyone needs to be aware of as they're as they're presenting data, because it, it is easy to kind of force the the narrative in one way or another. So okay, it is it, yes, and I think people have have a lot of faith in data analytics analytics because it sounds scientific, but there is quite a bit of interpretation and projection and direction in there. It's good to be aware of that. Agree. So, Christian, thank you for coming on the show and, and telling your story. I, I, I think it is very inspirational, hopefully for others. What is the best way, if, if this has sparked someone's interest and maybe they want to become a customer of Terragents or, or want to learn more about it, how, how can they best get in touch with you? Well, do check us out in our website, www.terragents.com or drop me an email 
either christian.ruford at terrigens.com or our general inquiry email info at terrigens.com. Because I'm a bit of an older generation, we're not really on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, but we are on LinkedIn. So reach out to me via LinkedIn and I will definitely respond. Okay, we'll make sure we get all that into the show notes. So uh, thanks again. Appreciate you coming on the show and telling your story. Okay, thanks very much. Ed. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.